0: you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this evening to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, looking at verses 35 through 41, not a lot of verses this evening. Why so fearful? Mark 4 has been a chapter of teaching. The first chapter, actually, of such that we've had in Mark. Uh, To this point, we've seen demonstrations intended to help the reader understand the authority of Jesus Christ Son of God. Jesus certainly spoke to the Pharisees and such, but uh, we have not seen uh, to this point the kind of teaching that we see in Mark chapter 4 as it relates to specifically teaching to those who are his followers. Jesus' teaching rests upon his authority. His authority is the basis for why we should hear him. And then Jesus' teaching itself compels us, uh, at least it has compelled us for the last two weeks, to consider how it is we hear. Teaching the listeners to hear carefully, then teaching the listeners about why it is so important to hear carefully. And that's what we talked about last week. Why is hearing so important? Namely... Because hearing carefully is the means by which we have access to all of the potential of the kingdom of heaven. That it is by hearing carefully that the word of God can then land on soil that is primed for the spirit of God to do the growing in the heart of a man so that then we can receive those things of the kingdom of God. Now this week we step back into a demonstration of power and authority, but once again it is unique. In that this time, the demonstration of power and authority is not given directly to uh, the, the multitudes, but in consistency with what we have seen in Mark, Jesus giving a parable and then talking to his nearer disciples, to those who have already received him, and using uh, um, that, that parable as a means by which to teach something to those who did exercise faith, to those who were operating in that that avenue or that mode of faithfulness. In the same way, we are going to see with this demonstration of authority and power. This is one that is directed specifically to his disciples. An overt manifestation of Jesus' position as the Son of God. And indeed, one that is very powerful. But also in a way that helps us practically translate Jesus' teachings about hearing and faith into a real-world scenario. As I said, the text is not particularly long today, but it is indeed rich. So we begin in verse 35, and the Bible says this. The same day when even was come, he said unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. So verses 35 and 36 set the scene. We're still in the same day as before. Presumably all of chapter four is happening in in, in the same day. Although we can't know that for certain, we certainly know that the same day is at least one of those parables, the last of those parables, if not all of the parables. And at evening of that day, Jesus said to the 12, let us pass over to the other side. Now this would be the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Recall that unto this point, the vast majority of what we have seen Jesus do has been centered in the book of Mark around Capernaum. Now, there might be more time than we would have thought between these things. We know that Jesus spends, uh, time around the feast going down to Jerusalem to be a part of those feast days. We read about those feasts in John. John marks, uh, um, the three of those feasts. And so we, we know that it happened several times. Uh, but, and, and it's through the book of John that we generally understand the length of Jesus's ministry to be something like three or three and a half years. Uh, we don't see that in the book of Mark. We, we see in Mark all primarily Galilean ministry. Uh, with notable exceptions of some time in Phoenicia, and then some time as we'll look next week in Mark chapter five in Decapolis. And so Jesus uh, desires to go over to the other side. Uh, Jesus, of course, lived in Capernaum during these years of his ministry. And while we see we have seen him go to the cities roundabout into uh, a desert place, and then certainly by the sea, it has all been at this point, we would presume, in and around the north part of the Sea of Galilee in the area that we would call Uh, well, Galilee. Now, Jesus desires that they would pass over to the other side of the sea, which would technically take him outside of Galilee as the Sea of Galilee, along with the river which fed it it and it came from, was technically a border of a region. So depending on who you talk to, they would have been put into the region of Gadara. And uh, as we look next week, we see that they go over to the other side into the region of Gadara, into Decapolis in the southeast. So we would presume that that's where they were going. So they send the multitude away, and they get into a ship to travel across the Sea of God to the other side. And the Bible says that there were with them other little ships, presumably, though they had sent away the multitudes. Other uh, people are just kind of following along with them, wanting to be near Jesus and follow him wherever he would go. We then continue, verses 37 and 38. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was on the hinder, in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? So as they're crossing the sea, a great storm arises, a great wind arises. Naturally, with wind would come great waves. And as those waves beat against the ship, the Bible says that the ship was now full. Uh, So Mark's not beating around the bush. The ship was full, and, and presumably that would be full of water. The waves were higher than the sides of the ship so that as the waves hit the ship, the water would flood into the boat, and the boat was filling up with water. And now those of you that have been in boats and have seen water get into boats, this can become a real problem. Quick physics lesson here for everyone. Boats work on what's called the Archimedes Principle, which states that the upward buoyant force that is exerted upon a body immersed in a fluid is equal to the weight of the fluid that the body displaces. But more simply, a boat must be lower in density than the water that it is placed in. A ship floats because the part of the boat that is underwater is lighter than the water that it displaces. So naturally, as the water is entering the boat, there's more weight in the boat, and as the weight in the boat is, is getting heavier, the boat is sinking further into the water because more water has to be displaced to counteract the weight of the boat, If the boat gets so low that the sides of the boat get to the bottom of the water, then all the water rushes into the boat and the boat goes to the bottom, right? That's how that works. No doubt the disciples were doing their best to evacuate the water, trying as hard as they could, but to no avail. So all this time, the Bible says that Jesus was in the back of the boat and he was asleep on a pillow. We know that chapter three uh, told us how tired Jesus was, so tired that at, at one point, Um, Jesus seemed to almost be out of his mind, right? That's what what, what people were saying about him. Uh, He had not been able to eat for some time. He was exhausted. Uh, He was sleeping through this storm because he was extremely tired. So the disciples were desperate. They were out of options. And they wake Jesus up and they cry unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, this is a strange question on its face, isn't it? Because whether or not Jesus cared about his or their lives was irrelevant if he was asleep and so not aware of the danger that they were in. But of course, they were afraid, and in any normal context, rightfully so. The wind was lashing the boat, the waves were beating against it, water was filling it, it was starting to sink. And in times of fear, it's very difficult to think clearly, isn't it? And it takes disciples into that place of fear, and and it, it, it it takes real discipline of heart to slow down one's thinking in times where the natural response is one of fear. So the disciples wake Jesus up and they kind of ask this silly question, even perhaps an accusatory question. And Jesus responds in verses 39 and 40. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it? That ye have no faith. So the first part of Jesus' response is practical and physical. Now, by this record, we do not actually see the disciples ask for Jesus' help. They just simply say, Jesus, why don't you care that we perish? It would seem that they had not thought to appeal to Jesus' power, only rather to appeal to Jesus' sensibilities as it related to the moment at hand. But Jesus arose, the Bible tells us, and he responded by rebuking the wind. And he said, peace, be still. And so he commanded the winds and the waves to cease. And the Bible says that at that moment, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The wind stops, the waves stop. And now the boat is calm. Now, this is the first time in Mark where we have observed authority over nature in this manner Exercised by Jesus. Jesus had shown his authority in teaching. Jesus had th- shown his authority over demons. Jesus had shown his authority to forgive sins. He had shown his authority over illness and over injury. Now he shows that his authority extends to the very physical elements of the creative world. As one who is reading a book themed on the topic, namely that we're reading Mark, which is themed on the topic of authority. And one who reads with eyes of determined faith, this is in no sense to us surprising. We read about this, and you all have read about this before, and uh, some of you uh, have grown up in Sunday school for years learning about Jesus stilling the, the, the storm and, and, and the waves and the wind. Uh, but may our lack of surprise in the capability of our Lord never callous us to the significance of what just happened here. Nature is incredibly powerful. Many of us know that. Uh, even today, we get there's just a little bit of that. Now we have a technology that's enabled us, uh, as a general rule, to avoid the deeper uh, consequences of what today has been. But we woke up this morning to negative eight degrees with a a, a wind chill of negative twenty five. Uh, some folks had trouble getting their cars started. We came in today, and the thermostat in this building was set at sixty seven, and the. The, the thermostat on the wall said it was 57 in here, right? So this building, uh, in this modern day, uh, could could not even get it above 57 degrees um, with all of the technology and everything else that we have going on. So we understand just how, how, how powerful and how dangerous and how uh, um, incredible the created world, the natural world is. In fact, the Bible even often appeals to the power of nature as a reference point to understand the tremendous power of the God who created it. Perhaps the best known exclamations of this are in Job. We went to Job, uh, 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 I don't know, last week, the week before. Uh, we're going to go to Job again. In Job 38, verses 4 through 11, God speaking to Job, he says this. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the seas with doors when it break forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, hitherto shalt thou come but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed God is asking Job, where were you when I did all of these things? And the thing that he speaks to here is in fact the seas themselves. He calls them the proud waves. He says that he is the one that set the boundaries for the seas and they lash against those boundaries. But God has said, you will go no further. God declared in Job's day that he had power over the seas. And of course, if we were continued reading, we would talk, we would see him talk about the the treasures of the snow and, and, and the might of the Pleiades and all of these other elements, all charted by the hand of Almighty God. And it is very significant, Christian, that we go to passages about the power of Almighty God over the very elements of the world when we consider what Jesus did on that day. Because what Jesus did on that day, is only possible if Jesus is God. No other person in heaven or earth has ever been able to claim authority over the winds and the waves. I know there are televangelists that think they, they, they have that, but no one has ever actually been able to functionally declare th- authority over such things save God himself. And if the one who commanded them, peace be still, is in fact the one who created them and sustains them, then they have no choice but to bow to his will as God described it in Job chapter 38, as he stayed those proud waves in that day. So too Jesus did in this day. So we see the first element of Jesus' response to the disciples' somewhat accusative question was to solve the problem. He commanded the winds and the waves to cease and stilled them by his will. Jesus then turned to the disciples and he asked a couple of questions. They asked the question, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now it's his turn to ask them a question. Two questions, in fact. Why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Now, we perhaps would not see this as two questions. We, we can probably well read this as one question uh, in two forms. Two ways of asking the same question. One marking the presence of a thing, fear, and the other marking the notable absence of a thing, faith. And as we look at this existence of fear, it exists in the notable absence of the other thing, which is faith. And indeed, throughout scriptures, we find this to be true, that where there is fear, there lacks faith, and where there is faith, there lacks fear. So that I am confident, seeing these two as, as it were, the same question, why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And here we are, a bunch of humans sitting in a room together. Then Jesus asked a good question, which I think even though we weren't there, we can answer. Why were they so fearful? Why is it that they had no faith? How is it that they had no faith? And as a human, the natural answer is because faith is not too difficult to have. It's not too difficult to remember to have when the stakes are low, right? It was not too difficult for them to have that faith when things were going well when there isn't before me any true danger. Faith isn't particularly difficult in those days. Faith is difficult when the stakes are high. Faith is difficult when I must trust in the unseen at times when the things that are seen are truly perilous. That's when faith gets a little more difficult. When I'm not experiencing fear, then faith has no competition. And so it's easy to exercise. But in the day of fear, that's when faith is challenged. See, because in the day where there's no fear, faith is not necessarily There's nothing to test it. James tells us in James 2 that faith without works is dead, being alone. Faith is not dependent upon works, but faith is also not proven until works are asked of it. Until the day that the decision to follow faith or fear is set before a man or set before a woman when one cannot know the strength of one's faith. You can't know the strength of your faith until it's tested. You can't know the limitations of your faith until it's tested. So for some time now, the disciples have been watching They have been listening. They have been learning from Jesus and they have watched Jesus exercise authority over all things in heaven and on earth, over demons and over illness and over guilt and over sin. They have listened Jesus teach with authority, questioned the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees, counteracting their accusations of his motivations and of his empowerment. And they have been exhorted that their hearts would be good soil ready to receive the fullness of the kingdom. But this is really the first time in the record of Mark where... What they believe or what they want to believe is truly tested by the events that are around them. They have watched other men and women facing the fears of their lives overcome. By illness that drives them to the feet of Jesus, overcome by demonic influence that drives them to the feet of Jesus, overcome by injury that drives them to the feet of Jesus. They have watched the friends of the man that that was sick of the palsy remove the roof of a house if only to give their friend access to Jesus' saving power. But this is the first time where such a thing was actually asked of them in such a way. Yes, Levi was sitting at the table of customs and he was asked to leave and follow. Yes, Peter and Andrew and James and John were mending and tending to and uh, their nets and their boats when they were asked to follow and they followed. So they were willing to give all and follow. But what happens in the day of fear? What would they do in the day of fear? What would they do when their faith is tested in that way? And they are asked to reckon with the personal implications of the faith that they claim to hold, that they want to hold. And Christians, this is always where the rubber meets the road. Not on the day when you can intellectually say you believe something that God has said. But on the day when what you say you believe is tested. And when that testing, the results of that testing will have real world implications upon your life. And today was that day for the disciples. They had watched Jesus save others, and now they had seen Jesus save them. But there's a key difference. Because those others came to Jesus and begged Jesus in confidence to do for them which they knew only he could. They came in their position of fear and of vulnerability. They had, they had known fear for, many of them had known fear for some time, vulnerability for some time, anguish for some time, torment for some time. And they came to Jesus and, they, and he responded to their faith with healing and with deliverance. But see, these disciples, they came in a different sort of attitude, didn't they? They came not in faith, but in doubt. They came not expecting, to do Jesus, uh, expecting Jesus to do great things, but they actually came accusing Jesus of not caring enough about them. Interesting. And this is what distinguished on that day these disciples from the many others who had been blessed by Jesus' authority and power. They came to Jesus. They sought Jesus for what they believed to do for them. And he says, your faith has made you whole. Jesus did not say your faith has saved you on this day to the disciples, did he? And this is why Jesus called them fearful and faithless. Rather than the typical response that we have seen, thy faith has saved thee. Because in this case, it was not their faith that led to their deliverance. In fact, in this case, Jesus delivered them in spite of their faithlessness. And that's a good thing to know too, huh? We study the book of Mark and all of the Gospels and we see all of these times where man's faith has made him whole. But you know what a blessing as well, that in a day of vulnerability, in a day of fear, in a day of weakness, it doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is going to look and be like, I'm done with you. On this day, though their faith was not where it ought to have been, yet what does Jesus do, but still still the wind and the waves, still deliver them in his mercy and in his patience. We've talked maybe not so much in the book of Mark, uh, in this series, but plenty of other times about the distinctives of faith and the fact that faith always precedes blessing, that by God's design, faith is ordained by God to be the catalyst for blessing and reward, that God rewards faith. But when I say faith always precedes blessing, well, maybe here in the book of Mark, it adds the little asterisk to that where I need to think through how exactly I present that because faith, by God's design, is the thing that precipitates blessing. And yet we are also reminded in Mark chapter 4 of just how patient, how long-suffering, how merciful, how gracious our Savior is that though faith does in fact precede blessing, And no man who is unwilling to exercise faith has ever seen the fullness of God's rewards in his or her life. This by no means limits God's capacity or willingness to deliver you and I from the deeper consequences of our own failings. God is just, but he's also so merciful, so patient. And thank God for that. Where would we be without it? We do not serve a God who is just waiting to drop the hammer on us at our first failure. Isn't that a blessing? He's not lurking over us. He's not that God with the lightning bolt in his hand just waiting for us to do the wrong thing. He's not that God with the lever in his hand just waiting to pull the trapdoor out from under us. The disciples here faltered in faith and and their faith gave way to fear. But even before any rebuke or any correction of his disciples, He first and foremost rebuked the wind and the waves and delivered them from their danger and actually pulled them out of their fear. He pulled them out of their fear. He put them back into a position of calm, of stability, of perspective. And then he lovingly directed them to understand what they did wrong. Jesus is not vindictive here, attempting to punish them for their accusatory question. Don't you care about us, boy? That would make me want to say, "Well, fine, you you do your own thing then." If you're going to accuse me like that, it's not what Jesus did here. He's a good master. He's a gentle master. Remember that. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Our Savior is a good Savior, good master. He's a gentle Savior. He's a gentle master. However, Jesus is also quite matter of fact here. Why is it, after all they had seen, after all they had heard, did they fall immediately into fear and subsequently accuse Jesus of not caring about them rather than operate from a position of faith, which would compel them into confidence in Jesus's care, by which in that moment they would not have come to Jesus accusing him of not... Would, they, they most certainly would still have come to Jesus, Right? The wind and the waves, and they're doing everything. They're seasoned sailors. It's not working. This is not happening. The boat is sinking. They still had to come to Jesus. But the manner would have been different, wouldn't it? They wouldn't have come to Jesus accusing him of not caring, but rather they would have come eager to be delivered. They would have woken Jesus up and said, Jesus, how are you going to fix this? Instead of, Jesus, do you care about us at all? And this is where the difference would have been. This is is what the difference would have been. In the moment that the boat was sinking, the disciples would have done everything they could. We presume several of these men, again, were at least capable sailors. They probably generally stayed fairly close to shore and fishing and whatnot. Maybe they weren't used to being out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Probably for this reason, that storms could come up pretty quickly. But in that moment, the only difference in the response of fear and that of faith would not have been whether or not they appealed to Jesus to be saved. Either way, they would have cried out to Jesus. The difference would have been what they cried. Instead of, carest thou not that we perish, we would have heard, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst save us. One is an accusation driven by fear, perverting their perspective to believe that the Savior was being negligent or apathetic to their need. The other is expectant, It's driven by faith, resting in the reality of our Savior's authority and identity as the very Son of God. And we read the disciples' response in verse 41, our final verse this evening. And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples' response here is fear. Now, this is a different word for fear than the one that we saw before. The word Jesus used to state that they were fearful and unbelieving is a very obscure New Testament word, used only three times in the New Testament. Translated all three times, "fearful," but the idea is is like a timid fear uh, with an implication of faithlessness. Now, the word here used here is the common word for fear. It's used 90 times in the New Testament. It's very common and it speaks of being frightened or being alarmed. So Jesus re- Jesus's rebuke focused upon their failure to trust their fear. they're they're, they're faithless sort of a fear, then the disciples respond to this with a different type of fear. Jesus called them not to be faithless and timid, but to recognize the extent of the power and the authority of the man who stood before them. And if they understood the power and the authority of the man that stood before before them, then they would not have responded with that faithlessness. And this caused them to fear him in the most appropriate and reverent way possible. A fear that increased their faith rather than competed with their faith. See, the kind of fear we want to have in our lives is not the fear of faithlessness, not the fear that drives away faith. We want the kind of fear that drives us to faith. Reverential fear. The thing that the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. The fear that inspires faith. The fear that inspires trust. The fear that inspires obedience. And these events lead us into our own considerations this evening. Questions that I want you to carry with you tonight. Five questions as we think through this passage. Question number one to ask this evening, does Jesus care? The winds caused the waves to beat against the ship, to fill the ship, so that the ship was full. The ship was sinking. These men were truly fearful for their lives. Jesus was asleep on a pillow. And in their desperation and confusion, they asked him a question. Now, let's seek a little bit of balance in our thoughts on this. And when I say balance, I mean balance both ways. We know the tendency in the human heart to exaggerate when under stress. Even the tendency in the human heart to use one's exaggerated language as a means by which to punish someone to reflect to the listener one's displeasure by overshooting the mark so that my child might squeeze the hand of their sibling. And as my child squeezes the hand of their sibling, I'll then hear a squeal and the sibling will say, don't pinch me. Well, they're exaggerating the action as a way of voicing their displeasure. They didn't want their hand to be squeezed. So now it's a squeal and a pinch. It's not just a squeeze. And then, of course, by doing so, they're making a public accusation as a means by which to hope that they can punish their sibling by getting them in trouble because a squeeze isn't that big of a deal to mom and dad, but a pinch most certainly would be, right? And we might see some or all of this in what the disciples do here. The disciples might not be exaggerating the danger. We perish. That's probably true. But in this danger, they exaggerated an accusation. Jesus, do you even care if we die? Have you ever talked to God that way? You're going through a difficult, fearful time and you pray and you ask God, God, do you even care? Do you even care about me? And at least in part, you ask that question knowing the answer, right? There are times where we can get so dark that maybe we we lose sight of that answer. We can get so confused, we can get so discouraged. But as a general rule, when we ask that question, we know the answer you're asking that question not because you actually d- believe, the, well, you're invested in the question, put it that way. You're asking the question because you're fearful. Maybe you're angry. Perhaps you are in part genuine. You truly wonder whether Jesus cares. But oftentimes it's simply because you are driven by fear into a state of accusation. And so we ask this question as the disciples did on their day? Does Jesus care? And of course, the answer is yes. We could go to the statements in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, Luke 12, verse 7, that tell us that the very heads of our, uh, hairs of our head are numbered. We, we went there not too long ago, that God cared for the sparrows, and we are of more value than many spares, and we've seen that recently. We know that Jesus cares, but beyond just Jesus caring, may I emphasize to you this evening the fact that as a part of Jesus caring, Jesus actually understands your difficulty. Jesus actually understands what you're going through and how you're feeling about it. Jesus understands fear. Jesus understands vulnerability. Jesus not only cares. Jesus knows. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he knelt in the garden and sweat, as it were, drops of blood and begged God to let that cup pass from him. In that moment, Jesus was in agony, was vulnerable. He did not want to do the thing that the Lord was asking him to do. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. However, Jesus never, accused by, or never responded by accusing his father falsely, as the disciples did in their day. Jesus never responded with doubt, driven by fear, as the disciples did in their day. Did Jesus feel that fear? I think he probably did. But he did not let that fear drive him. He was driven by faith. However, Jesus nevertheless experienced the weight of that emotional moment, the weight of that temptation to fear, so that we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, not only Christian, he not only cares, but he understands. He understands what you're going through. He's experienced it too. He knows what it is to be human. And to be human is to be emotionally volatile and emotionally vulnerable. We know this. We're not going to pretend as though the Christian is outside of or above emotional volatility or vulnerability. To do so would be foolish. We talked about that a little bit this morning too, right? Humans are human. We're going to fail. We're going to struggle. We are going to have emotionally difficult days. We are going to have fears. We are going to have uh, anxieties. We are going to have confusion. We are going to have vulnerabilities. We are going to become proud. We are going to become short-sighted at times. And Jesus knows that because he is human. He experienced it. He felt fear. He was just not overcome by it. He was tempted, yet without sin. Does Jesus care? Absolutely, he cares. He has told you he cares. He has shown you he cares. But he he also has a reason to care because he understands the weakness of your flesh, of my flesh, of your emotional state, of my emotional state. He knows you. And by the way, he died for you knowing that about you. He loves you. He chose you. Carest thou not that we perish? That's what the disciples asked on that day. And maybe at times you ask that question too. Lord, carest thou not that I perish? And the answer, which we all know in our times of clarity is yes, of course. Jesus absolutely cares. Second, is Jesus able? Lots of people care about things, but just because I care about something or someone does not necessarily mean I'm in a position to be able to fix their problem. As a pastor in a church, I care about a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I can always fix their problems. Some people, some problems simply can't be fixed. Some problems are beyond my ability to fix. Some problems are beyond my resources to fix, and some people aren't willing to have their problems fixed. But what we know is that Jesus, above all things, is absolutely able. And in some senses, we know this because of what we read here in Mark chapter 4, right? We read of Jesus stilling the wind and the waves, and in the day that I'm wondering, can Jesus fix my problem? I think back on Mark chapter 4, and I think back to Jesus, peace, be still, and I say, you know what? Yes, Jesus can fix my problem. Now, the disciples didn't have Mark chapter 4. They kind of had to live Mark chapter 4. After the events of Mark chapter 4, maybe they would do the same thing that we do today, and they'd think back on Mark chapter 4 in their days of difficulty, in their days of stress, in their days uh, of struggle. We point to Jesus stilling the wind and the waves, and we ask the questions about life that when we confront the problems that are entirely outside of our control. See, that's what this is, right? The wind and the waves are something that is entirely outside of the disciples' control. They tried to control it. They tried to use all of the skill and all of the technology and all of the, 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 the strength that they had, all of their capacities. They put toward fixing the problem that was before them, but you simply can't fix the problem of waves and wind. That's a bigger problem than a man can fix, at least in the moment. We stare down the winds and the waves of our own lives. We come to those problems that Pastor Wickler can't fix, that mom and dad can't fix, that society and money and the healthcare system and whatever it might be can't fix. And the waves are coming over the sides of the ship of your circumstances. That is the moment where we are are reminded that the one who died for our sins is the same one who created those winds and those waves the same one who hung the stars, the same one who said in his day, peace be still, and the wind ceased and the waves were calmed. And to be quite honest, at least in my own experience, it makes it far more able for me to face the dangers and the trials of life when I can rest in the confidence that the situation, even if the situation doesn't go the way I want or the way I expect, even if, as we talked about this morning, God's timing is not my timing or God's uh, uh, my understanding is not God's understanding, it is much easier for me to rest in confidence in the situation that I face when I know it's not, not outside of the control of the one who loves me. Notice how I said that. I didn't say it's not outside the control of the God who is in control. Yes, our Savior is in control, but as we've already covered, He is not just in control, but He also loves me. As long as I know that I'm in the hands of the Supreme Creator of all things and that that Creator has ordained my best, I don't get to choose what that best is. I don't get to choose the timing. I don't get to choose the circumstances. I don't get to choose the results. But as long as I know I'm in the hand of the one who loves me, then I can rest in faith and not fear. I'm not concerned when those things threaten to overwhelm me. Because I know not only that my Savior cares, but that he is fully capable of handling the circumstance that I face. That leads to a a third question. It's this first confrontational question. Does Jesus care? Yes, he cares. Is Jesus able? He's absolutely able. Third, are you then, Christian, living in fear or faith? What drives your decisions, actions, reactions? Fear, faith. And of course, by fear, we don't speak of any type of fear. Not the fear of God by which we are compelled to revere and honor the creator of all things. That's the next point. But rather the fear of timid doubt which compels faithlessness. This is the opposite of faith, Christian. These two responses cannot coexist because the presence of one demands the absence of the other. What drives your thoughts? What drives your actions? What drives your responses, both to God and to others? Are they founded upon an understanding and a confidence of the character of your God, of the capability of your God, undergirded by that unchanging character? Or are they founded upon a doubt of your God, undergirded by a disregard for what he has said about himself. Which of these forms the basis for how you live? We know that we are called unto faith. I quoted Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 this morning. Let's do it again this evening. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The only things in our lives that truly please God are those things that are done out of faith. My righteousness, all of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. My capabilities are only of value as they are given by God anyway. And so they can be duplicated in anyone. God does not need my capabilities. God does not need my righteousnesses. God rejects my righteousnesses and my capabilities could be duplicated in anything or anyone. In Balaam's day, God used a donkey to accomplish his will. I'm not special if God uses me to accomplish his will. That doesn't make me special in capability. That doesn't make me special in any sort of way, shape, or form. God can use anything. My talents and abilities are in no way essential to God. But what pleases God, what is of true value in God's eyes, what sets a man apart for God, is his faith. It's his faith. This is that thing that is that sweet-smelling savor to God. Going all the way back to studying Genesis, going all the way back to Abel, going all the way back to Seth, going all the way back to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham in his day. What made, what pleased God of these men was their faith. This is the thing that God wants. When you're willing to commit your way to God, to his way, to his promises, to invest yourself, your very life, in his word, when you do not live by bread alone, but as Job said in his day, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, Job twenty-three, twelve. And when the words of God's mouth are esteemed more than our necessary food, in that place that pleases God. Because this is faith. When what I know becomes what I believe and so affects what I do. Are you living in faith or fear today, Christian? And we recognize that while there are two categories, these categories do exist on a spectrum. Faith is something which ebbs and flows. It's not as if you're all faith or you're all fear. There can be fears in your life in one area and faith in others. Faith is something which grows. Faith is something that has a beginning but then progresses. So that along with the question of, of the binary, fear or faith, We also ask the question of spectrum. Are you in your Christian life progressing in your faith? Are you progressing, Christian? Are you moving onward? Are you moving upward? Are you drawing nearer? Are you walking closer? We sang a song tonight, Oh, to be like thee. Are you you drawing more to your Savior? Are Are you becoming more like your Savior? Are you in a state of improvement? In a state where you're identifying fear and maybe you've had days where you've been in fear and the Lord has had to rebuke you and then you've had to come out of that fear. Did you, did you do something with that lesson? Did you take a step in that day? Maybe you don't seem to be as far along as someone else. And you're comparing yourself to others and you say, well, yeah, maybe, but, but, but I'm not where they are. Okay, but are they progressing? Maybe they're stagnant in their faith and you're progressing. Who of these is where they ought to be in that moment? To this end, I ask the question. And as I ask the question, I encourage you not to consider this through the lens of comparison with those who are around you. When I ask you the question, are, are you progressing in your faith? Are you moving in your faith? Don't think of where you are compared to someone else. The question is, are you moving forward? Are you living in faith or fear? It's not a question of where you stand compared to those around you, compared to other church members or your parents or your siblings or your children or your pastor. It's a question of where you stand with your God. Are you moving from where you are to where you need to be? Are you progressing from fear to faith to where the Word of God says you could and should be? Next question is the other fear. It's the inverse of the one I just asked. Are you living in fearful or faithful fear? Not fearful faith, faithful fear. In contrast to a faithless fear that would strip from you the distinctions of obedience and faith, a man or woman who walks in faith does not do so in the absence of any fear. A faithful fear is a fear of the Lord which understands that the God whom you serve is the all-powerful God. A faithful fear is a fear of the Lord which forms the foundation for faithful actions, which recognizes that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which recognizes that there's coming a day where we will give an account, which recognizes that there's a God in heaven who is our authority, and because He is our authority, we will answer and we do answer to Him, and so we are compelled to align with Him because when we align with Him, that's when things go as they ought. This is the fear that a child has for his father if there's a right relationship between them. Not the kind of fear where the child flinches when the father raises his hand, but the kind of fear that says, because my father is one who is good and loving and cares for me and also disciplines me, I am seeking to align with him in order, first, that I don't disappoint him, and second, that I don't, I don't have to deal with said consequences. It's the kind of fear that a person has in a rightly adjusted society to law enforcement, where they can drive by law enforcement and they don't feel as though they have to duck and hide if they're not doing anything wrong. But if they are doing something wrong, then they need to be concerned. That's the kind of fear. A fear that compels us to weep and mourn for our sin because we know that there's a day of judgment coming. And while that day of judgment, the believer will not be a day that ends in damnation, yet you fear The fear of the Lord compels you to live for that day, lest you suffer eternal loss of reward before the throne of God. A fear that compels you to honor the Lord, because if you cease to do so, even the rocks would cry out. That's the right kind of fear. So Proverbs tells us, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Proverbs chapter eight, verse 13 tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way in the froward mouth do I hate. So Proverbs nine, verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27 says, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. So Proverbs 19.23 tells us, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Are you living in faithful fear tonight, Christian? In the days of storms, of the circumstances of your life. You don't want to be driven by faithless fear of that which is confronting you. And you don't need to because you serve a Savior who cares, a Savior who is able. You don't want to live in a faithless fear. You want to live in a faithful fear. You do want to live under the conspiracy the the perspective that compels you to faith, where you would not dare not trust. Pardon the double negative of a sort. Maybe not. Because to fail to trust is to fall short of faith. And whatsoever not of faith, Romans 14, 23 tells us, is sin. Final question this evening. What manner of man is this? This is where we don't want to lose sight about what we just read this evening. The book of Mark highlights Jesus as the divine son of God with all authority and power, authority over all things. What manner of man is our savior but the great and almighty God of all flesh? This morning we talked in kind of a continuation of Genesis 17 where God introduced himself by a new name to Abraham, El Shaddai, the almighty God. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He's the Almighty God. And God asked a question to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18 this morning. On their day, the question was, is there anything too hard for me? What manner of man is this? He's the man that stilled the waves and the seas. What manner of man is this that would do such a thing? What manner of man in this, is this that would come to earth to redeem humanity? What manner of man is this that had all power over heaven and earth, that even the wind and the sea obeyed him, and yet he would humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? This is the most powerful person in heaven or upon earth, a man of holiness, a man of judgment, a man of justice, but also a man of mercy, a man of grace, a man of humility. Simply put, when the disciples ask the question, what manner of man is this? The answer is simply, this man is the greatest man who ever lived, who gave everything that we might live through him.